0: listening to the CIPD podcast series. Someone once said that it's not the strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but the one most responsive to change. That's truer now than ever, with this global recession driving organisations to adapt, evolve and transform with an urgency not seen for decades. But the causes of change are never quite the same. Vicky Wooderson is HR Director at Gate Gourmet, the aviation food providers. She spoke at the CIPD's HRD conference in April about the dramatic turnaround which was forced upon the organisation back in 2005.
1: Imagine a company which was losing money year on year, yet the employees and the managers thought all was well. Imagine a company where there was a complete lack of trust between the management and the union, between the management and the employees, and even, as was later realised, between the union and the employees. Imagine a company where it was common practice for the employees to regularly dine tools, just stop working, and an organisation where there was no formal process for negotiation or consultation, or ability to be able to discuss and resolve the issues that were existing. That was Gate Gourmet four years ago. I caught up with Vicky
0: afterwards to find out more about a change strategy that took the organisation from a situation where they were facing enormous losses one year to breaking even the following year and making a profit the next.
1: Basically, Gate Gourmet was was totally at crisis point. So we were losing millions of pounds. We were losing 27 million year on year. The union essentially were were sort of running the organisation, or the employees were running the organisation, and managers were just scared to actually do anything about it. So things were just getting worse and worse and worse. Um, And I guess the culmination of it was we did have the administrators in the business. We did end up with 1,000 employees striking illegally in the summer of 2005. We literally had no choice. We had to do something about the situation. Otherwise, the company just wouldn't physically have survived. We wouldn't be here today if, if we'd allowed it to carry on.
2: Survival really depends upon continuous change in today's economic environment. Sure, there are organizations that are in more stable situations, pieces of government and so forth, where it's not job number one but increasingly in the private sector and most competitive business situations there's no challenge to making the argument that boy if you aren't changing and changing regularly you're going to lose out because the market is moving that rapidly
0: that was ed lawler director for the center for effective organizations at the university of southern california more from him in a moment But as he says, change as part of strategic growth can bring with it all the challenges that sudden unexpected change also can. The Heart of England NHS Foundation Trust took over a poorly performing neighbouring hospital in Sutton Coalfield near Birmingham in 2007. The acquisition was one of the largest of its kind with a workforce of 10000 and a budget of nearly half a billion pounds. Mandy Coulter, director of HR and OD, explained why when Heart of England NHS Trust became a foundation trust in 2005, the purchase of failing hospital, Good Hope, became an attractive commercial option.
3: Being an FT creates all sorts of opportunities. You know, it's a new system for hospitals to have more freedoms and flexibilities and actually to be more commercial. Um, and I think that really was uh, the catalyst in a way, because um, it then gave us the opportunity to to look around locally, saw what was happening with Good Hope um, and that there were some significant issues in a local hospital that was on our, if you like, local patch, Um but presented for a foundation trust with big ambitions um, and the potential to be more commercial, it did present some new opportunities that perhaps wouldn't have been um, open to us um, in, in the old regime before being a foundation trust. But the big challenge for you was that
0: the um, heart of England was a very successful mm. outfit indeed, and good hope had its problems, didn't it? <laughs> Uh, Yes, it did. Um, You must have known at the outset you were going to have people problems marrying up two organisations like that.
3: Absolutely. um, Absolutely. And I think... um one of the things that really attracted me to join the Heart of England was the fact that they really recognised that. I joined them um, about nine months before the acquisition, and they wanted an HR director to come in and support them with the people management. They, they really understood that at board level, so it wasn't difficult to put the business case to them that we needed to invest And and that really was the platform for everything that we did. I'm not saying we did it perfectly. Uh, I'm sure if I went back, I'd do things very differently. Um, You had a whole host of very different people that we had to engage from very senior people at Good Hope, clinicians, the doctors, um, some of your other frontline staff. But we also had to remember that there were a lot of people in Heart of England looking at this and going, but why? you know, were successful? Why risk that by taking on this organisation? So some of the messages had to be very different um, for those uh, different stakeholders. It wasn't
0: always easy for Mandy and her team. The challenges were very large. But one measure of her team's success was their placing as runners-up in last year's CIPD People Management Awards. Would you say that the work you've done on actually bringing the two hospitals together means that... As a as a joined organisation now, they are more agile and ready for the change that will inevitably come in the future.
3: We've certainly got a greater sense now of being one organisation. It's still not perfect, um, you know, but the, the kind of them and us isn't really there. Um, but we, we've still got work to do to make that that absolute, but it's it's getting there.
0: At heart of England, one of the biggest challenges was to get emotional buy-in to the idea of joining forces from the thousands of employees. And next month, in the second of this two-part podcast on making change work, we'll hear more from Andy about how she actually did that. Lookahead is a charitable organisation providing housing in London for the most vulnerable members of society. There, it was a shift from charitable to commercial culture that drove the changes. A voluntary organisation, yes, but in recent years an organisation that's had to adapt to a more commercial framework. It's been a huge cultural shift and the challenge was to retain the core values of a charity while adopting commercial business practices. Valerie Ravenhill joined the organisation as it underwent this transformation.
4: Practically overnight... A contracting market emerged and it has grown and become fiercer and fiercer and fiercer um, over the last four years. So all the skill sets that you would need in private sector, all the business practices, became um, a requirement in in the sector. We became financially accountable on a contract-specific basis. Customer relationship management, for example, became key. Accounting systems had to change. New infrastructures for presenting data to different local authorities had to be developed. It was a massive change, and it was a massive behavioural change. I think previously in the sector, the focus had been very much on support and care, which is what we do, and we do really well, but the balance of moving towards sound professional business practices was now needed in this changing market. So that, that was the need for the change. And as you say, this is a huge shift in practice and emphasis.
0: What sort of time frame did you have to make it all happen?
4: We really had to gear ourselves up from day one uh, and sort of muddle through. And what Lookahead did was essentially, when I joined, put in a strategy to manage that change proactively to get ahead of the game.
0: We'll hear in detail about the highs and lows of overseeing major changes from Heart of England, Gate Gourmet and Look Ahead, as well as from Xerox in next month's podcast, part two of the series Making Change Work. You're listening to the CIPD podcast series. In these economic times, we all tend to take the view that change is forced upon us as a negative thing. But of course, in the end, it can often be an opportunity rather than a disaster. Here's Chris Worley.
5: The global recession that we're having now, I think, is a good case in point. Uh, there were a lot of indicators that organizations had saying that uh, the environment was going to change, but even with that, they didn't adapt very well and have struggled with their adaptation. So the the notion that you know this change can be a positive thing has been part of the conversation in a lot of the organizations in the United States. Limited Brands, Boeing, uh, a lot of these organizations in the U.S. have been taking this economic crisis uh, not not only just reacting to it, but also taking the opportunity to make some positive changes in their organisations because of the downturn.
0: Chris is a research scientist at the Centre for Effective Organisations at the Marshall School of Business at the University of Southern California. Both he and his colleague Ed Lawler have done a lot of work exploring how best to design an organisation that can adapt freely. Together, they wrote built to change, and between them, they've advised hundreds of leading organisations. Here's Ed again.
2: We see a number of organizations now saying, gee, if only I had known this kind of change was coming, I would have, and a lot of them are HR issues. I would have put this system in. I would have put this practice in. I would have put this policy in. And of course, now they're struggling to do it. It's not as easy to do as if, the, if they had done it earlier. But it certainly has highlighted the point that you have to think about change as a continuing ongoing process. And An important piece of that certainly is the human capital uh, issues that arise with massive change like we're seeing today. So the way
0: we view change is the crucial factor here, and being prepared for it is key when it comes to long-term survival.
2: To me, the distinction that makes sense, and it's, it's a little bit grey, not certainly black and white, but it's the distinction between episodic change and continuous change. How do you create organizations that go through continuous change? Yes, they execute, but execution is not the number one objective so much as continually adapting to the environment. And we know that inherently has some inefficiencies in it because you have to maybe sacrifice a little bit of current performance in order to get ready for the next change that's coming along. We argue that that Execution orientation, yeah, is okay in a stable environment, makes a lot of sense, you can fine tune forever and still gain more efficiency, but that many organizations, that's just not the way to go, that you really need to focus on continuous change, not episodic change. The problem with relying on episodic change, meaning you're stable for a while and then you make a big cut point and say, okay, now we're going to reinvent ourselves or we're going to change, is that most of those efforts are unsuccessful. The landscape of large corporations that have failed when it came time to make episodic changes is is everywhere. You see it in General Motors or Ford or you name it. The ability to make those big adaptive changes is not very good.
0: So if the important thing is being continuously ready...
2: What's the secret? What the, all organizations can do is build a culture which supports change and likes change. And that's the most difficult thing to do in many respects, is how do you create a culture where people say, oh, good, we're going to change, rather than, oh, no, here it comes again, we're going to get, you know, blah, 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 blah. Exactly. And all too many organizations are in the latter condition.
0: Yeah, that know. point about achieving a continuum, I yeah. mean, it's just not possible to do that, is it, if with organizations in the mindset, as you say, oh, panic, yet more change. Yeah.
2: And building, building the culture that loves change, has an identity around change, is, is very difficult. It takes a combination of leadership and reward systems and uh, training commitments, commitments to people of the right kind that make them, and selecting the right people that makes them comfortable with change and enjoy change.
6: Change is now the norm it's not the exception anymore and uh, I love the phrase that uh, a guy called Abramson came up with which he borrowed I think from either physics or chemistry uh, which is about um, we shouldn't think of change as aberration anymore we should think of it as actually dynamic stability because it is stable because we can anticipate it therefore we ought to be ready for it. Linda Holbeach
0: is the CIPD's Director of Research and Policy and an expert on organisational development.
6: For me, being change ready is people in organisations, big and small, somehow being made much more aware of what's happening externally, how their suppliers and customers are experiencing things that are just round the corner being alert to how their own organisation is going to need to change. And so there's something around how organisations can get, if you like, anticipatory of change, which I think is really fascinating. There are lots of ways organisations do that. You know, part of it can be little things like sending people from call centres along to meet with some of the customers that they deal with, just having conversations about what... what you know chewing over what the problems have been in the recent months you provide people with information that they sit around in groups business information and make some sense of for themselves and then pull together their thinking about well crumbs if these are some of the things that are around the corner what does our organization need to do about it so it's, it's not around always thinking it's the top management that need to be telling people to get ready for change. It's around helping people to help themselves get ready for change. I mean, as you say, I think that's a really interesting point, the,
0: the business of knowledge sharing, because in most organisations, large or small, some departments are already ready for change. It's part of what they do. A lot of, you know, possibly support departments are not. They just do what they do the same way most years. And so... I rather suspect that a lot of organisations will find they have the expertise to skill their people up in-house already. It's just a question of sharing it, isn't it? And talking about the skills that are necessary to accommodate change when it does happen.
6: Yeah, Yeah, I think it is. It's giving people... You know, in the, in the busy organisations we all work in now, you know, it's, it's, it's almost illegitimate sometimes, it seems, to actually just have some space to hold informal meetings. You know, the idea of conversations around the water cooler or whatever, seem, you know, what are those people doing wasting time, as opposed to actually they may be having conversations that are really, really helpful.
0: When it comes to starting to get an organisation ready for change, there's no single formula. Here's Chris Worley again.
5: We get the question about uh, how do you sort of implement agility a lot. Um, and uh, the question is not so easy to answer because there's lots of places where you can, can begin. In the book, we try and parse that out a little bit and say there are issues around strategy and the way strategy is developed in the organization. There are issues around structuring and how you align the organization to the strategy. There's human resource issues involved, and there's a whole set of capabilities uh, that organizations need to put together. So, the question about how you build a, a built-to-change organization is a little daunting because there are so many places to that you can begin. Uh, what we've tried to get organizations to do uh, is, is to think about where are they agile now. Uh, most organizations, if they've survived for any length of time, do possess some level of agility, and we try and, and help them understand uh, what parts of their organization or their strategy or their culture are currently supporting uh, changeable sort of attitudes, and then uh, identify those areas where they need to make changes uh, to increase their agility.
0: This idea, then, of sharing knowledge across the organisation is clearly a good place to start. At the very least, it'll raise the general awareness of the issues at hand. Here's Linda Holbeach.
6: I think it's, it's really crucial that if you want people to be change-ready as individuals and, and then collectively as an organisation, I think that really only happens when people have more of a sense of I'm doing this because I want to. And I think people are often more willing to change when they know why and what's happening um, than if it's just imposed. It's about ownership, isn't it? It's about people
0: feeling that they're actually part of the organisation, not just employed by
6: it. Yes, I think think there is something around, actually, a change-ready organisation has sometimes more the challenge that people are so hungry for change and so impatient. It's senior management who can appear to be the blocker And all that. And that's where, again, senior management really needs to be aware that whilst they do want change-able organisations, they themselves have a responsibility for being clear in their own thinking about where and why they want people to be in that state. Because once you let the genie out of the bottle, it's hard to put it back in.
0: It makes sense that in order to make an organisation embrace change, to make change part of the DNA of the culture... You have to employ the right leaders and managers, making recruitment an intuitive place to start. Robert Gallivan is the Dean of Social Sciences and the Head of Business and Law at the National University of Ireland, Minute. He teaches and consults on strategy, leadership and top-team development. We hear a lot about the characteristics of individuals who are most able to handle change well. I think, you know, it's a very comfortable idea that there is a shopping list that we can go out and look for and people will get those people on board and they'll be able to do it for us. Do you think that has merit or is it, is it
7: actually nonsense? Thankfully, I think it's nonsense because it would be a really boring world <laughs> <laughs> if there was one single set of characteristics or one person that was, uh, was the ideal leader. And this is research that's been going on since the 20s and, uh, and 30s, looking for the ideal set, uh, set of characteristics. A search for uh, one type of organisation that suited the change or one type of person uh, that suited the change is absolutely futile.
0: But Robert's research has shown that HR's position when it comes to becoming change-ready is increasingly key.
7: One of the shifts that's taken place is that the traditional strategic model of the last 30 or 40 years has been about trying to create competitive advantage by an organisation designing itself, building itself, uh, distributing itself and selling itself uh, of a product that it could control the market with. Most organisations have recognised that actually to do that these days and to have the pace to respond to the market, they need to network. They need to work with other organisations and they become a node in an international uh, network of organisations. And that shifts fairly radically the skill sets that are required inside an organisation. So it's no longer one of legal control, financial control, engineering and process control, but it becomes much more important that people can have trust with relationships with their partners, that can understand how to work with people in a creative way to find new opportunities out there. And those skill sets don't emerge from the traditional functions uh, of marketing and engineering and finance. Those skill sets are actually best developed by people who understand people, which is the HR world. The question is, now really are HR people up to it will they live up to this challenge uh, and will they take it on going into the future
0: yes because this collaborative new world is a complex thing isn't it and as you say for traditional HR in its traditional bunker as it still is in many organizations I think it's fair to say as you are they the people because they don't use those skills themselves do they so if you're saying that collaborative sharing um, way of behaving is necessary throughout organizations of all sorts where does that knowledge come from how do you teach people to do it
7: well, well, this is a shift to the importance of uh, psychology and sociology and anthropology in organisations as opposed to uh, the economics of organisations. So economics is still terribly important to us, uh, but we more and more need to understand the social processes in organisations. And there isn't an obvious function in organisations that will bring those skills in other than HR. Uh, and so the challenge is for HR to live up to this in a strategic way now and to say that part of our role is as the personnel people of the world, but par- part of it is also so as the strategic people who understand how relationships work inside organisations, um, if they don't step up to it, somebody else will. GlaxoSmithKline is one of the world's
0: largest pharmaceutical and healthcare companies, so perhaps we shouldn't be surprised to hear that they're approaching the ability to change the organisation as a personal well-being issue. Nicola Riley is the Health Strategy and Vendor Manager at GSK, and I asked her why
8: they're focusing so strongly on adapting their people to be resilient to change. There is no other constant but change. So as employees functioning within small, medium, large organisations, we have to be agile, we have to be flexible, we have to be resilient in order to cope with the demands of the day, but also whatever the future may hold.
0: They have a range of programmes in place in order to boost resilience, going from company-wide to individual level. They look at team resilience and personal resilience. At the heart of their approach, particularly for stressed executives, there's the individual Energy for Performance programme. This includes blood tests, personal audits and even spiritual analysis.
8: We realised that we had an energy deficit, particularly in our our senior groups, in terms of sustainability. And really, in times of change, it's about sustaining our energy levels for the long run. So with that particular group, we're offering them our Energy for Performance programme, which is based on the corporate athlete, uh, which is worked by Jim Ler. And this programme covers four key dimensions of energy. So it looks at the physical energy of the participants, the emotional energy, the mental and the spiritual energy and that's very much looking at physical energy in terms of how they're leading their life the nutrition they're having whether they're being physically active what type of exercise they're doing we also then focus on emotional energy in terms of are they self-aware are they managing relationships are they managing their emotional states to the optimum and we look at spiritual energy which is looking at their deepest sense of beliefs and values and whether the way in which they're currently leading their life is fully aligned to those innermost sense of purpose and belief so this, this is quite a spring cleaning
0: process for these people isn't it they have to be very honest and open with you about how they're living their lives what they're doing what they're not doing and they're assessed you, you get input from their family
8: and their colleagues and so people i presume learn quite a lot about themselves that perhaps they didn't know before They do. Sometimes it does cut fairly close to the bone in terms of the feedback, you know, having been through the programme myself, in terms of the feedback that you get. But I think it's such a catalyst for change because people self-elect to come on this programme. So they've already identified that, okay, they're functioning very well at work, their outputs are very strong, but they maybe have a concern about can they sustain this level of performance for the long run. And you're
0: seeing really positive outcomes from this, aren't you, in terms of productivity, in terms of energy level?
8: We are. We have um, very senior sponsors through the organisation that are advocates of the programme, having experienced it and put their own teams through. And at the moment, we're noting a 50% increase in self-reported energy levels. That's
0: very high. Are people over it? do you think? Are they, is it really a 50% increase?
8: Well, I guess if an individual self-reports they have a 50% increase in energy, then they believe that that to be the case. Um, so you can only say as as much as, as the individuals are giving us that information. Now, you put 3,000 people through this course so far. Are you planning on rolling it out across the company? We've currently offered this program in 51 countries. Um, so we're... Looking to roll this out sort of globally, um, it's very early days. 3,000 in terms of the the global population is very small, so it's it's only been launched um, for two years. So it's sort of early days with this particular program, but the indications are that there's a real thirst for it.
0: So at GSK, they put in place a truly holistic program to deliver razor sharp focus in an environment requiring real agility. It's one way of preparing individuals and the organisation to be resilient to constant change. Next month, in the second part of this podcast, we'll be looking in-depth at how four organisations, Gate Gourmet, Look Ahead, Heart of England and Xerox, have tackled major change. That'll be on the CIPD website from the 2nd of June. Until then, if you're looking for more support and advice on delivering change, take a look at the notes accompanying this programme. They include links to fact sheets, research and other resources. For now, though, goodbye. You've been listening
1: to the CIPD Podcast Series.